to the Communication Studies Podcast. My name is Justin Young. I am a faculty member here in the School of Communication Studies at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. And this week, I am joined by Kaylee Scanlon. Hi, Kaylee. Hey. So uh, Kaylee is a PhD student here in the School of Communication Studies. She is currently, uh, is ABD the correct designation for you? Uh, All but dissertation? Yeah, I think that's the the unofficial. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to say as far as on a resume or anything. Right. <laughs> so um, you are currently finishing up, though, your doctoral work and working on your dissertation? Oh, thank goodness, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just real quick, you're planning to be done in the spring, is that correct? That's my hope. If everything goes well, I'm planning to graduate in May. All right. So we're going to talk to Kaylee a bit about um, what she's doing currently with that dissertation, some of her other work. But one of the first things I'd like to know is, um, you know, your interest is in theater and performance. Um, What got you interested in that? How did you get to here at SIU today and everything? What what sparked your interest in theater? Boy, that's a long story. Can it, can it be a long story? <laughs> um, sure. Maybe you can give us the abbreviated I will, <laughs> version. I will try. Um, no, I've, I've always been interested in theater. Um, uh, when I was really, really young, uh, my brother Brent was in a high school play. Uh, he's much older than me, about 12 years. And mm-hmm. uh, apparently, now I don't remember this, but my mom took me to the play, and she said that I looked at her afterward and said, um, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. So, um, in high school, I tried my hand at acting. It was awful. I hated it. It was horrible. My anxiety was, you know, yeah, it was, it was not great. I didn't like it. Um, and so I ended up auditioning for a play and didn't get a part and I was sort of relieved. Mm -hmm. Um, she casted me as, uh, it was, um, uh, what is it called? Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. And I was I was casted as one of the puppeteers for the plant. For Audrey. Yeah, Audrey too. And um, I really enjoyed that, just not being seen. Um, I was obviously on stage for a lot of it, but some of the time when I wasn't on stage as one of the plants, I would be backstage just making sure that props were ready and set pieces and things like that. So um, that's really where I found my love of being a part of theater, but not being on the stage. And so uh, really in college is when I got into stage management, and that's really where my focus was for a very long time. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you just real quick to move your microphone just a little bit closer to you. Right here? Yeah, that's great. Um. Yeah, so uh, I noticed that you did your master's work at the University of Akron. Yep, in Akron, Ohio. And that was in arts administration. Yes. So I always think that's really interesting because everybody wants to be the artist, right? Everybody wants to be sort of on stage or they want their painting to be hanging in the museum and everything. Um, But there's a whole lot of jobs on the administrative side that people often overlook Um, so how was that doing your master's work in that? And what did you learn about maybe the theatrical world from the administrative point of view? Well, uh, a lot of people don't think about administration. Like you said, it's kind of, uh, you go to a play and you're, you're looking at the lights and the sound and the actors and the dancers and the costumes and everything, because that's what you see right out the bat. But, Mm -hmm. um, it's really cool, uh, to, consider that um, there are so many people that have to do work way beforehand or even all year for a production that happens one time. And uh, so you need people to raise the money for it. So the development team, you need people to to um, uh, spread awareness for it, the marketing team. Uh, you need somebody to oversee the offices. So the, the managing director, mm-hmm. there are so many people in the offices that work all day, every day, nine to five, um, just to make sure that these productions do go off without a hitch. And so I really, as, as somebody who, you know, I did stage management, which is really active support for the production, but, um, I wanted to look into a little bit less 
in the production, in the the active support, but still be contributing to everything that they need in order to make the productions productions happen because I think that they're really important. Um, and so I, I did a lot of focusing through my master's degree. I, I focused on mostly development and grant writing, mm-hmm. so a lot of fundraising stuff. And uh, I thought it was really important work because without that, there would be no production. They wouldn't have money for the costumes or the set pieces sure. or paying the uh, performers, you know. So, I mean, you talk about that people often overlook the development side and they often overlook the fact that there's somebody in the theater working all year round, right? Um, mm-hmm. Getting, you know, even if it's just the physical space, right? Like maintaining the physical space and everything. What do you think is the area that people probably most overlook when it comes to arts administration? Like what is the thing that the general public is maybe most oblivious to? Hmm, that that's a hard one. I, I, I think honestly the most overlooked is probably development. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, some theaters don't even have a development department. They rely on their entire uh, administration staff to take care of all these different um, things that go into development, which unfortunately I've noticed as far as the, you know the research that I did for my master's degree, oftentimes those nonprofits fail very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, because people don't realize just how many hours has to go into fundraising and development. Uh, you have to build rapport with your patrons. You have to plan events. You have to do a lot of data entry. <laughs> um, and so these are little things that really add up. And so when those responsibilities are spread throughout the entire administrative staff oftentimes things fall to the wayside rapport is not built up with patrons Mm -hmm. asks can't be as big because you have not developed that relationship with your patrons and so uh yeah in my opinion i think development and um maybe not grant writing but development as a whole uh, aside from grant writing i think is very overlooked in a lot of theaters and and also just generally with nonprofits there's a misunderstanding that, you know, often nonprofits are having to spend money to raise money. And so they often get some blowback over that. Like, Oh, well, why are you spending, you know, a thousand or thousands of dollars on this fundraising event? And it's like, Oh, because we will get X times amount back in return for it. Exactly. It's a lot of upfront money, especially if you are doing um, galas or events or, or anything like that. Um, But part of the development, the chief development officer's job is to um, really prove to the board that this money is really needed because it it will get this much back, especially uh, if you have patrons that are wealthy in the community. That's Mm -hmm. a really important thing. Um, And so, again, if, if these jobs are split up between the other administrators, sometimes you just can't they don't have the insight. They don't, they don't know these people. They don't know. Um, a lot of it is honestly math and money, you know? Right. Right. And you have to be able to prove to the board that this money that we're up fronting is really worth it. So this might be a little bit of inside baseball, but, um, who are those patrons that are, uh, are the biggest supporters? So you note it like, um, rich donors and that sort of thing, but it, is it a situation where theaters are actually getting an equal amount from small money donors? I mean, we've, we've certainly seen that in politics lately, right, where it's the people who are giving $10, $20 who add up to as much as the person who's giving $10,000 or something of that nature. Are we seeing similar things in the theatrical world, or is it still those, like, 10 big ticket donors that are really bringing in most of the money? Uh, that really depends on the community and the theater that, that uh, you know, the, th- the community that that theater's in. Um, but you're right. Oftentimes it is the small donors, the 10 20 $30 donors, um, and that does add up. Mm-hmm. However, again, a development team, their position is to um, have – incentives for the small donors or to really reach out to people after every single show or, um, you know, 
uh, team up with the marketing team. So while they're doing marketing materials, also have an ask on there. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really important, yes, to, to get the small donors. But also, uh, theater is still, um, the patrons are, are still much older. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, that does mean that a lot of theater's audience base is literally dying out. Um, and so... Of course, marketing and promotion really needs to focus on getting these young people. But at the moment, development really can, uh, they really need to focus on the older um, patrons because oftentimes they have more expendable money right now. Um, Whether or not that's a good thing or not. (laughs) (laughs) But... uh, They also have money they could leave in a a will, for example. Yes, exactly. I know that's a big part of development. Yes. Um, Making sure that you have such a close relationship with somebody that uh, when they pass away that there is a chunk of that that they can give, whether it's monetary or in kind. A lot of times they will leave furniture to theaters to use as uh, props, which is really, really nice, really good, um, because props do cost a lot of money to buy or build Sure. And so even if it's not monetary, just having, um, you know, in-kind donations, uh, objects, things, bikes, beds, you know. Yeah. As, as somebody who's been shopping for furniture, couches are really <laughs> expensive. <laughs> yes, they are. So usually it's a, the props department will make a platform and put a sheet on it and <laughs> say right. it's a bed because it's a lot cheaper. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the audience can go along with it. Right. Um, so... You mentioned uh, a bit earlier about your experience with stage management, and here at uh, at SIU, you've taught actually a course in stage management as well as the practicum. Um, so I, I guess we should explain real quick, kind of up front, a practicum for somebody who maybe isn't familiar with that term is sort of like an internship, um, maybe a term people are more familiar with, but it's a yeah, sort okay. of hands-on experience actually doing the work mm-hmm. uh, that you learned in a class. Yeah, the uh, the main stage management course is, of course, in the classroom. We uh, learn out of books. We talk about things. We discuss interpersonal issues that and uh, responsibilities and things that the stage managers might encounter. But yes, the practicum is they are they get to stage manage or assistant stage manage a real show. Usually here at SIU, it's it's the SIU shows, um, mm-hmm. but. There are opportunities um, to get some of those credits outside of SIU, um, but for the most part, just because we don't have, um, you know, we have so many positions and we have so many opportunities, and so oftentimes we get our stage managers to do our shows, which is really nice because that allows them to continue to work over and over with the same actors and the same designers and things. And so they can really work through interpersonal struggles or challenges and, um, you know, build rapport. Mm -hmm. And these are really great practice tools for students who, who want to stage manage out in, you know, as their career. So they get to do the, the normal paperwork. They get to learn all of the, uh, software stuff that they need. They learn how to handle the stage and how to call cues. And and so this is all stuff that when actors, oftentimes in, um, in regional theaters, for example, oftentimes actors will be asked to stage manage and they are thrown into it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a very hard job. And so um, it's really nice that these students are not just thrown in. They are given all the tools that they need before they do it. And then while they do it, the stage management practicum instructor, which I did for a little while, um, supervises them, gives them advice, gives them, uh, you know, they'll they'll have questions or they'll be stuck and I'm right there beside them. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess we maybe need to, like, I have some background. I've done some theater, all amateur, um, and... So I kind of have an idea what a stage manager does, but I'm not sure that the average person who may be listening does. Um, so what does a stage manager do on a play? Uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> All the things. Uh, well, the stage manager is pretty much the, the head liaison between all of these different 
departments or creative departments specifically. And so from beginning to end, they are the ones that are um, maintaining the integrity of the show. So they are making sure that actors know when they are called. They are um, putting out all of the paperwork. They are communicating with designers, um, getting cues from designers, putting that in their call books. They're working with the director. The director oftentimes has, you know, they, they'll, of course, they'll block the actors and they'll have notes for the actors. So the stage manager keeps track of all of that. Um, gosh, I, I don't think there's enough time in a year to explain everything that a stage <laughs> manager does. Uh, <laughs> so they are, they are in charge of keeping everyone on track through the process from beginning to end. And then at the very end, they're the one who calls the show. So they are the one who says, uh, you know, lights go, sound go. Mm -hmm. Um, And they they should know by the end of it. And they probably will because they have gone through the script over and over and over and over again. They should know on page 42, this actor is facing this way. It is on this side of the stage. They're wearing this costume. This light is on them, this color light. And this sound effect is playing. Mm -hmm. They should know that right off the bat. And they will because they have been, they're the first one in and the last one out, not only for the process, but also each day. They come and lock the place and then they stay after cleanup and all that kind of stuff. So it's a hard, hard job, but it's extremely rewarding and it feels so nice to finally get to the the final performance and you just know you hear the audience and they're just loving what they're seeing and they don't even know that you exist which is actually perfect because if they know you exist that means you mess something up <laughs> if the lights are falling on <laughs> right. actors that's that's a bad sign <laughs> right so if the audience is just enjoying themselves they're laughing they're crying or they are exasperated or, or whatever the emotion is if they have a strong emotion but you you know that they don't know that you even are there. Mm-hmm. That's when you know that you have fulfilled your job and you did an awesome job on it. And, uh, yeah, it's just really rewarding. So you kind of touched on this, that um, if you're at a small regional playhouse or something, that the actors might be wearing multiple hats. So mm-hmm. they might be asked to not only be an actor on stage, but pick up some of the duties, if not duties of the stage manager and everything oftentimes Um, not at the same time they'll uh you know they'll be an actor but uh for one show it would be impossible to do both at the same time mm -hmm. um i mean maybe assistant stage manager backstage could happen but that's that would be really hard right um so what do you think the value of having students do this do this course and do the practicum and everything um I mean, you've touched on that already and everything, but like, what do you think insight or perspective it gives a student who says, hey, I'm going to be the next superstar actor. I'm going to be the next Bob Odenkirk, right? A a very proud SIU alum. Um, What does being the stage manager through your course and through the practicum, what sort of insight does that give them into the... um, you know, the experience, the total experience of, of a production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the stage management course is open to pretty much anybody over in theater. And in fact, I don't even know that you necessarily even have to be in theater to be a part of it. Um, so I I have not had the pleasure of, of teaching an actor specifically, but mm-hmm. I have for, for people that are designers, but they also uh, have an interest in acting. And I think that a lot of the skills are really applicable to any field within theater or out, the organization, um, interpersonal communication, um, management, supervisory um, jobs, you know. Mm-hmm. It is applicable to other things, but also it gives people who are not necessarily wanting to be stage managers for the rest of their life, if that's not the career that they want, it gives them a whole new respect for what the stage manager does. And that is really important because it it does help with the relationship between the stage manager and the performer or stage manager and the designer later on in life. If they understand what the stage manager does, 
mm-hmm. they understand that there are reasons for some of the things that they're being told. You know, if, if they have that background and they have that understanding, it does help with the uh, communication and rapport between them, which is really, really important. And right now, one of the issues that um, that the that Hollywood is facing is a lot of the technical people are currently uh, considering going on strike. Um, and, you know, and some of their biggest supporters have been these sort of A-list actors that we're all familiar with who are out there saying, no, 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 you don't understand. They're doing the hard work behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, it seems like... Um, that experience doing stage management and everything helps build that sort of respect and that sort of appreciation. Yeah. Um, I think that that's really important. And unfortunately a lot of people, even within unions in theater are not given, um, the respect and safety that they need in the workplace. So, uh, IATSE, that's, um, the, the union that's, I believe that's the union that's going on strike right yes. now. And uh, they're working 10 out of 12, which means within a 12-hour period, they can work 10 hours, and that can be day in, day out, mm-hmm. which is just too much. And oftentimes, even if they are granted a break, they are strongly discouraged to take a break. And that's not just IATSE. That's not just in Hollywood. That's in a lot of theaters. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. there is it's an epidemic of overworking uh, technical personnel. Why do you think that is? Is it that the profit margins are that small? I mean, obviously, we we don't think that's true in Hollywood, but, like, it's certainly probably true at a lot of theaters. Um, Is is that the reason? Is it that, you know, sometimes the sort of mentality of, well, these people are in it for the art and the passion of it, so we can expect them to work themselves harder than we would at McDonald's or someplace uh, because they're passionate about this, right? This is their life dream and everything to be working in this. Why do you think it is that those, um, those workers are overworked? I think in a lot of cases it is um, the turnaround time between shows is so short and they're told the show must go on. It must right. happen, and it must be up to these standards. And that's not necessarily unreasonable, but at the same time, you, you know, they're, the designers and the carpenters and um, all of the staff within the departments, they are they have to get the work done in this amount of time. And so oftentimes that means that they have to work over hours every day, especially when it gets down to tech week. Tech week is awful for the, for everybody, honestly, (laughs) but particularly the designers and the stage manager, um, just super long hours because it's, we have two months to put together this huge production. So you do what you got to do. And a lot of times these, uh, uh, organizations will not hire additional staff or not hire assistants or not fill all positions. And so we have too many people doing too many things in too short of a time. All right. Well, uh, speaking of doing a lot of different things, um, you have worked um, credits listed, working in wardrobe, working uh, as the electrician on a show. Um what does it mean to work as the electrician on a stage show? Uh, the electricians usually are stationed on lights. So they're the people who hang or focus lights, focusing as far as uh, the designer will say, the light has to be sharp and it's in this location of the stage. And you point the light that way and you adjust the, you know, whatever um, lamp you have or, or whatever to, to make it to the designer's preference. So mm-hmm. that's what the electricians usually do. They hook up the lights. Sometimes they work on sound. Those are typically audio engineers, but mm-hmm. um, sometimes the electricians will do that as well or help. Um, you know, they may also work with practicals on stage, practicals meaning uh, lamps or a working toaster or something like that. The electricians mm-hmm. would do that. When you talk about lights, I have to ask, so... When I was doing plays, it was 
very old like lighting boards and everything. So, you know, it was like the literal ones where you have to unplug them, but it's not a, a traditional like electrical socket, but you were like literally unplugging things and plugging them back in. Mm-hmm. Um, are most places a little bit more updated than that? Cause that always seemed like a, <laughs> a death trap waiting to happen. Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but death trap waiting to happen is a lot of theaters. <laughs> uh, no, okay, it, it, it depends. And uh, this is why development is so important. Um, we need to get more money into the production. So development, like I said before, is really, really important. Um, but uh, no, un- unfortunately, a lot of theaters just don't make the kind of money to get updated equipment, but some of them do. And, mm. and thankfully now... At, at least the ones that I worked for, thankfully, have slightly better. That's good boards. to hear. Yeah, <laughs> not by a lot. <laughs> That's good to hear uh, because that was always a little kind of intimidating. Um, <laughs> I, I've got to ask you because you had this listed on your CV um, that you had one at one point worked at Spencer's Gifts. <laughs> And I'm just... I, I'm probably going to take that off of there. I don't know what to do with it, honestly. <laughs> well, I, I'm just thinking of every retail outlet, Spencer's Gift has got to be the best place for, like, a theater kid, right? Oh, it was so fun. So what, I mean, like, um, what made that, like, a great place to work? For somebody who is into theater, into, um, you know, sort of the, like... Um, boldness of everything what makes spencer's gifts the best uh the best job to get well i mean i can't imagine being in macy's or something and just having to put on this big fake smile and like (laughs) hello may i get you this oh that dress looks so good on you like i can't i cannot so (laughs) what was really nice about spencer's is that we could play around and joke with our guests and um, the whole place was just a party all day, every day. It was just jokes and fun. Um, no, it probably shouldn't be on my CV. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, I, I thought it taught me a lot too, as far as uh, it really helped me with interacting with other people because mm-hmm. I, of course in sales there, you're sort of forced to go up and bug everybody and um, try to promote more things. But it, it helped me a lot as far as interpersonal communication, uh, really trying to get on people's side and, and that kind of thing. But um, also that was my very first supervisory job too, which was, it, I think that that's a really important thing as a young person to have mm-hmm. that experience, whether or not you want to continue in management or supervisory ship, but just having that experience, having more respect for the people who do supervise you. It, yeah. Um, so that's what that taught me. And yeah, it was, a, it was a good place to, good place to work out of, out of all the retail places I can think of. I've got to ask the logical follow-up question here, which is how many blacklight posters do you own now? None. I didn't buy anything from there. <laughs> okay. Wait, no, scratch that. I bought, I bought like jewelry from there, things like that. Um, okay. but most stuff was too expensive, even with the discount <laughs> and also just not my style. <laughs> My intense memory as a child are the blacklight posters and Spencer's right. gifts. That was like the coolest thing as a little kid was the blacklight posters, which were always full of like unicorns and weird like fantasy imagery, um, I feel like. Um, so one other job to kind of touch on here real quick, that you do uh, wildlife conservationist and field worker. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that seems like uh, a departure from all the theater stuff, but I don't know. Is it is it uh, being a guide to people, like, and, you know, kind of telling them about an area or telling them stories about the area, or what kind of work are you doing with that? Oh, it, yeah, it's not related at all to my, my work and my research. I just okay. uh, <laughs> I just love animals. Yeah? Um, yeah, I when I was – when I was uh, originally going into undergrad, I, I was really um, debating with myself whether I wanted to go to, into theater and art or if I wanted to go into veterinary science. It was a debate for myself. So this way, volunteering for a wildlife rehab, which recently I haven't had a whole lot of time for it just because of the dissertation and everything, but mm-hmm. I do want to um, 
up that time and anybody else is called free again please go volunteer there they need people um but uh no that was just something that okay well I'm doing my work I'm doing my my research and everything but also I'm missing out on helping animals so Mm -hmm. I decided to go volunteer there a lot of the work that I do there is um a lot of poop cleaning okay (laughs) uh cage cleaning and uh wrapping wounds feeding um some releases, things like that. So uh, we would find places that oftentimes, because you can't just take a wild animal and put them anywhere, that's Mm. against the law. So you have to find a property, find the owner of the property, make sure the owner is okay with you releasing it. And then you, once it's well and healed and everything you and, and ready, you take it into the wild. Now, some animals can never go back into the wild, so they need lifelong care. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I, I really enjoy helping them, knowing that I'm making a difference. And, uh, you know, I, I've i really only had one not even bad experience, just annoying. I got, <laughs> I got bit by a baby raccoon. Oh. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was so cute, but it, it got right into my thumb. Mm-hmm. And... I I went to the doctor. Um, obviously, this raccoon did not have rabies. It's uh, contrary to popular belief. W- wildlife, it's it's very rare that rabies happens. Usually, it's distemper, which humans don't really get from them. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had gone to the doctor because I, th- I, I thought maybe it could get infected because this was a wild animal, obviously. Sure. And um, they were wanting to go find the animal and put it down. And so I had to lie and say that, uh, because I knew exactly where that animal was, but I wasn't about (laughs) to let them put him down for biting me. Uh, He was a baby and he was scared, you know, I was just trying to feed him. And um, so I I told them that I just, I was driving on the side of the road and I just felt like petting a baby raccoon and I did it (laughs) and it bit me. And so the doctors thought I was real dumb. But <laughs> that that would feel like a really dumb thing to yeah. do if somebody told you. <laughs> right. So I was like, I don't know where it went. It ran off. I, you can't kill it. So give me some rabies shots, I guess. <laughs> so I got rabies shots. <laughs> so obviously baby raccoons. What sort of other animals have you dealt with? Uh, deer, turkeys, foxes, a lot of cats. Uh, possums, skunks, birds, owls. Um, oh, and two otters. Oh, wow, two otters. Yeah. Um, they're mean. <laughs> really? Yeah. They're so cute. They're so mean. Oh, they're cute, but they are mean. Huh. I would I would have never thought. Now, raccoons, I know, are like really... Um, yeah, they get a little vicious, yeah, <laughs> especially when you have food in your hand. Yeah, they can, um, but they're also, like, not at all intimidated. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like other animals, like deer, you know, scatter at, mm-hmm. the, you know, Yeah, at they don't sound. care. If they think that you have food, they do not care. So I've got to ask you the follow-up question here. You mentioned a lot of cleaning up poop. Yeah. Which animal is the worst for cleaning up after? Oh, they're all awful. Um, the worst is it's got to be raccoons because <laughs> they just because they walk around in it and they get it uh, all over the walls and even the ceiling of their cage and uh, I, I don't even know how they climb up that high but they figure it out <laughs> <laughs> um and so it's not only cleaning every inch of their cage but like scrubbing because it just they pack it in there with their little feet and then cleaning them, <laughs> which is really hard to do. If you've ever tried to bathe a raccoon. This is how you get bit, right? <laughs> right. But uh, it's it's so fun. It's so fun and rewarding. That's a, I mean, that sounds uh, amazing and everything. Um, what group specifically is that that you work with? Uh, this is the Free Again uh, Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. Okay. So if you look it up on Google, it actually, what comes up is... Gosh, I can't remember, but it's her husband's, um, like, paint thinner job thing. He mm-hmm. sells stuff like that. So that'll come up on Google, but it is the address. So, yeah, just do the address, go up there. And it, it, they have a phone number, too, so you can sign up with her. And um, her name is Beverly, and she's, she's really nice. Yeah. Okay, great. 
Um, well, we have a few other things to get to, but I, w- I want to make sure that we get to your dissertation. Of course. Um, and your dissertation, let me try to read this because it's a mouthful. It sure is. And this is just a working title. <laughs> this will probably change a lot of times. Um, the effects of narrative conversational storytelling on effective empathy and relational bonding, a quantitative casual comparative study. Causal, sorry, not casual. Um, I'm having trouble reading here. But I actually got it all out without too much of a yeah, tripping you did. over. You did. Um, but, okay, I read that. What does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> I hope by now, since you're planning to defend in the spring, you do have an idea. <laughs> I have a little bit of an idea. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, I, I, I'm specifically focusing on narrative conversational storytelling. So um, people discussing with one another their real-life past memories, their feelings and and listening and sharing with one another so it's a back and forth conversation as well and uh, I am also testing with that with this activity the storytelling activity what effect it has on affective empathy specifically instead of cognitive empathy and relational bonding or perceived relational bonding so explain to us the difference between affective empathy versus cognitive empathy yeah um well, all of this goes under the umbrella of theory of mind, which is essentially understanding that other people have different thoughts than you do and have different information than you do. Mm-hmm. Within that is empathy, and empathy is split up into, I mean, it really depends on who you cite as far as how many types of empathy there are, but the kind of overall consensus is that there is cognitive and affective. Cognitive is... Um, like, uh, I see someone crying, and I understand that that means that they are likely sad. Mm-hmm. So affective, on the other hand, is more of a internal uh, effect, an internal change. I see someone crying, and therefore I feel sad. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a personal, you take on the emotions of other people. Affective is also split up as well into... Uh, Reactive and parallel. Reactive is, you know, if you are, if you're walking down the the street and somebody in front of you gets uh, a slur thrown at them or whatever, you feel angry that that happened to them. That is uh, reactive. If they say the slur to the person and they're upset and you feel upset, so you feel a similar um, emotion to that person that's parallel. Okay. So specifically, I was trying to focus on affective empathy, so internal empathy rather than understanding, which is still really important. Um, I am finding, though, with this study that it doesn't really matter um, as far as between the two. If you are taking the time to perspective take and understand where somebody is coming from, it doesn't matter if you feel it or not. It just matters that you get it and you act based on your understanding. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I, I was focusing on affective empathy, but I I am going to talk about in there that, that it really, it doesn't make much of a difference in action. And the focus is on storytelling and the way that people dialogue a story yes. with one another. Yes. So kind of, kind of like, Maybe explain that a little bit more because I, I, I feel like I kind of have an idea what you mean, but. Uh, so, for example, one of um, there, my study has three different scenarios and each scenario is a little bit different. But mm-hmm. um, one scenario, for example, is prompted face to face. So I'll ask a question like, um, tell me about a time when you felt that your time had been wasted. Okay. And the storyteller will tell from beginning to end who was there, what happened. They they tell a story about, I don't know, their cat was really overweight and their vet said to walk it every day and they walked it every day and it did not lose weight so it felt like their time had been wasted. Mm-hmm. And then we have a back and forth where the listener is invited to laugh, nod, interject, anything that comes naturally to them because it's just a conversation between the two. Right. Um. They are asked after this. This is where it kind of 
gets a little bit away from just normal conversational storytelling where the listener is asked and prompted to consider how it felt for the storyteller um, during the experience and what kind of emotions they may have been feeling. Basically just an active verbal empathetic response or perspective taking response and uh, then the storyteller can say yeah that's right or no I actually felt this way and then they take turns and they do that back and forth and so Mm -hmm. they are invited to share real life stories and memories from their life Um, in one of them it's unprompted one of them it's prompted and uh, you know so it, it is it's a conversation between the two. And this is a, a sort of laboratory set up yes. by you mm-hmm. where you're bringing two people in and asking them to perform this. Yes. Yes. Just okay. for the study, because this is uh, a quantitative study, it needs to have variables that can be replicated. And so I tried to eliminate all external variables that I could. Of course, that's not necessarily possible, especially sure. if I don't have my own lab. <laughs> right. You know, and, and everybody's different too. And so they interpret things differently. And um, and that makes it really interesting as well. Um, Certainly, like somebody, if you ask me a, a time, my time has been wasted. My mm-hmm. definition of something that's a waste of my time might be very different than, say, yours yes. or someone else's. Yeah. Um, and so there were, there were obviously a lot of variables, and I can't because the the stories themselves were so open and they could talk about almost whatever they wanted um they could even say i don't like that prompt i want to tell this story you Mm -hmm. know instead uh which didn't really happen that much but they were allowed to um but the the real you know i wanted to eliminate all of the external variables as far as sound and other people and uh discomfort as much as possible so i tried to keep this base enclosed and just us where Uh they could be free to talk about whatever they wanted and not feel like somebody's listening in. They were given pseudonyms instead of their names. So they didn't have to feel like anyone outside of the study was going to judge them based on something that they said. And so, um, you know, throughout the three scenarios, I tried to change variables specifically in order to be replicated later um, that's one thing in, in a quantitative study that you really need to be able to do is that another researcher should be able to come by and at least for the most part replicate your study. Right. So, you know, the, the, the setup for this of somebody telling somebody a story of, um, you know, a time they feel like their time has been wasted, for example. If, if I were to sit here and tell you a time I felt like my time has been wasted – um, and then that you would give me feedback along the way, like, mm-hmm. as you noted, nodding or laughing or whatever, right? Like, um, you know, we talk about that as part of the communication model mm-hmm. that, you know, you give the listener gives the speaker feedback and everything. But the, the third part of it, the like sort of post part where they're sort of asking them about their empathy, mm-hmm. um, and how they connect it with this, um, that's not something that we necessarily normally do mm-hmm. as part of our lives. Um, the first two parts, you know, telling the story and then delivering the feedback are very much part. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what is the, um, I, I guess maybe what is the, the real world application of finding that out and everything? Mm-hmm. Is, is it completely um, artificial or are, is there some way that we are doing that in our lives and we're just not necessarily thinking of it in those terms? Uh, this is kind of artificial and I think that it would continue to be that way, even if it was used in practical, uh, in practice. Um, so this would be something, this would be an activity that one would do with an audience of mm-hmm. a performance. So there would be this very structured back and forth. And so Yes, we do already perspective take, but we are not active about it in our everyday lives. We don't verbalize it. We don't write it down. Sure. And um, something that I'm, I'm working with is uh, Theater for Social Change and their attempts to make action happen in accordance to social change. And a lot of that is their, their idea of 
how theater for social change impacts empathy and perspective taking. And so I'm trying to develop something that may fast track it, may make it stronger, um, may make connections happen a little bit um, deeper. Mm -hmm. And um, from the research that I've done, especially in social psychology, which is kind of a side thing that's coming into this dissertation is social psych. Um, having this active verbal, I understand you, this is how I know that you feel, um, mm -hmm. even just self-disclosing helps you trust another person more. And, um, and then having that corrected or confirmed because empathy is, uh, contrary to what a lot of people think, is learned behavior. Mm -hmm. So um, having... The storyteller say, absolutely, that's exactly how I felt. Or, I mean, you're close, but this is actually how I felt. Having that confirmed or corrected for the listener also helps them to further develop their empathy for the other person. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting because it's sort of um, a previous guest of ours, uh, Shelby Swafford, who is also doing performance and everything, um, and also, you know, working on her research right now, one of the things that we talked about was, you know, this ideal that the, the author is dead, right? The Roland Bart like sort of ideal that, um, when you publish something, it's just out there and you as the author, um, don't get this opportunity to go sit down with the audience and say, okay, well, let's talk about it. Um, you know, I, I think about Steven Spielberg refuses to do commentary tracks on his films because he says, my film should stand on its own mm -hmm. and you don't need my explanation of it. Um, and it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you're kind of pushing for um, something slightly different than that. Yes. An idea of a, of a living author in the moment who at the end of, this case telling a story or maybe at the end of a, a theatrical production who could sit there and let the audience give them feedback and they could like then in turn give feedback to that audience and say, hey, you guys were laughing at the wrong part. That's not supposed <laughs> to be funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, this would be um, this would be an activity that would be done after, um, I mean, typically like a narrative performance or something mm. along those lines. And it it's like a very structured in the moment talk back mm -hmm. essentially um there would have to be a i guess a moderator somebody that would prompt along the way to make sure that it stays structured mm -hmm. and um and so this is more of a specific activity than something that we can just do in everyday life which of course we we kind of do mm -hmm. i mean if somebody tells you about their day and it just sucked you just go you know I'm, I'm so sorry. Your day really sucked. You must feel really bad. I'm, you know, uh, and you empathize with them, not really in the same structure, but you're still doing it. Um, but this is just activating it more, making it stronger, making it very, um, open to pretty much the kind of getting into the theory of mind thing where you are very actively aware of, what you are understanding and what you're taking in and mm -hmm. what you're expressing. So, you know, one of the values I think of art in our world is that art teaches empathy, mm -hmm. right? When you said earlier, some people say you can't learn empathy. Well, that's kind of the whole idea behind art, right? Right. Um, that it exposes us to different ideas, different people, different experiences than our own. And that from that, we have a better understanding of the world around us and right. particularly the world that's different than us that, you know, is not our experience. Um, it, it seems like to me, this is trying to, um, you know, really trying to embrace that idea and really trying to, um, to make sure, I don't want to say make sure, cause I don't want to make it sound like it's forcing anyone, but like, um, maybe helping the audience kind yes. of get there if they're struggling. Right. Yeah. It's, it is guided. It's prompted. It is, uh, I mean, it, having them take 
an action, essentially, you have to use different parts of your brain. You have to, um, what is it, the prefrontal cortex, as far as from my research, when you verbalize your feelings, it lights up a lot more than when you just think them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these are things that I'm trying to incorporate to make it, I don't know if stronger is the right word, but more active, more engaged, mm-hmm. uh, something that they are actively thinking about considering and verbalizing. Maybe resonate yeah, in yeah. some way. Um, yeah, no, that seems really interesting. Um, are there... Were you inspired to this or maybe, you know, kind of uh, motivated towards this by looking at things where people were maybe getting conflicting emotions or conflicting reactions to it? Because I certainly know there have been things I've watched before and then um, would later go listen to somebody else talk about. And I was like, I don't think you maybe got the point to that. And you know, sometimes that's just about different experiences, right? Somebody comes in with a different experience. Sometimes it's maybe that um, you you keep using the term active, you know, mm-hmm. an active listening or active participant in it. Um, sometimes it's because we expect art to be passive, something that we kind of set back and consume, mm-hmm. whether it's a movie or music or even a book to some degree, right? Um this is sort of forcing people to be a more active participant in it. Mm-hmm. And is the hope that, that, um, that, that in turn leads them to a better understanding of the art. Right. Uh, well, I, I took some inspiration, I guess, from, um, do you know, theater of the oppressed Augusta Boal? Mm-hmm. Um, he does theater for social change and, um, he has a lot of different theatrical forms, you know, li- living newspaper or things like that. And with Theater of the Oppressed, he would come in, I feel, maybe with an agenda of this is what we are going to address today. And he had this term, spect actors, where he would have people um, watch and then come up and perform. And yes, that is active perspective taking, however, um, they didn't have a lot of discussion afterward. They didn't get to choose what issues were really important to them. And and also, it leaves out the people that are not, uh, whether it's confidence or whether it's introvertedness or whatever the reason is, that they aren't getting up mm-hmm. to act out a piece because not everybody wants to perform. Right. Um, and so it, it's leaving out a big group of people that can't really participate in this or, or don't want to. And so this way, um, it's more, it is a little bit more passive than that, but it's not totally passive. It is engaging verbally and mentally rather than getting them up, acting out a part. Um, and that, that also, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to create something that has to be segmented out as its own workshop. I, I want to create something that can just be incorporated after anything you go to. Right. You just go see, I don't know, if you go see Tim Miller or something, you aren't going to want to go up and do a whole workshop afterward just to have a conversation afterward. Mm-hmm. That makes it a lot more accessible to a lot more people, in my opinion. Yeah, and that, and certainly that's great. I mean, as you were talking about, the, the audience for theater is older and kind of dying out, and if you can make it more accessible to a new audience. Right. Um, that makes it even better, right? Um, all right. Um, one other thing I, w- I wanted to ask you about here. So um, you did some puppet work <laughs> for East of the Sun, West of the Moon, a show here as part of the Kleinau Theater. You did character yeah. design and puppet maker. Can you uh, <laughs> kind of talk about that? Because, um, you know, are you, are you creating the next Fozzie Bear for us? No, and, and the puppets are a little bit, uh, hang on, I'll explain I'm going to take a swig of my drink. Okay. Okay. I mean, if you are creating the next <laughs> Fozzie Bear, I'm super <laughs> impressed, let me tell you. No, these puppets were, okay, so uh, the creator of East of the Sun, West of the Moon was Angela Duggins. Um, she was the writer, director of this um, play, and it was virtual, it was over Zoom. 
And uh, for the puppets, originally they were just going to be drawings. And uh, she had me do character design. So she just gave me the personalities of all of these characters and said, kind of going for this style, go for it. Mm -hmm. So I drew up and created all of these characters. There was a bear man. There was a witch that changed uh, into an ugly witch and a little girl who turned into a duck, Um, a man who turned into a horse. (laughs) Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> things like that. Um, so you're creating BoJack Horseman, basically. <laughs> pretty much. No, I, I made the horse pretty realistic, but, I mean, if you wanted him to talk, he could. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, also a bunch of trolls, things like that. So um, originally they were just going to be drawings, but then we were thinking um, instead of that, in order to make a lot of movement and dynamicism happen uh with this camera kind of over the top and then a green screen background with you know other people's drawings of backgrounds and barns and houses and and landscape and things have that as the background and then be able to move the characters so we did like a not really paper i mean they a a lot of them pieces of them were made of paper Mm -hmm. so they were kind of like flat paper puppets with realistic movement in their arms and legs and feet and head and all that. Uh, But they were mostly made out of crafting materials. I sewed on their clothes. I um, created their hair out of twine and things like that. So a lot of glue. Yeah. (laughs) And all of their joints were made of buttons. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, that's pretty much what I did for the character designer thing and the puppet maker. So I made these puppets. I didn't really move them. They weren't the kinds of puppets that you stick your hand up into or, or anything like that. Right. But um, they were just flat and had to have sort of realistic movements. I think the hardest one was the horse because they have so many joints. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and his, his hair was really hard, but uh, we got him um, this. I I did like a, I got yarn and I brushed it out and took a straightener to it and made it sort of fossy hair, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, or not fossy, uh, Fabio, Fabio yeah. hair. So if, if Muppet Studios calls, are you, are you going to take that call? Is that a... Well, if they give me enough money, I sure will try. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um... I feel like for the most part, as far as like working with my hands and making things, that's something that even if I've never done it before, I could do it, you know. Sure. I, I'm good at crafting. I love it. I love sewing. Like, uh, And so it was just a really cool opportunity to make these little puppets. They were just so fun. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think the play was really different. It was interesting having it over Zoom, having all these different artists come together with so many different styles. It was really neat. Yeah, our... Um our uh, episode with Craig uh, Gingrich Philbrook, um, he talks a lot about the change that that forced and how it's made a lot of people rethink, um, you know, the way that productions are put out into the world and everything. Yeah. Because for a, a good year, if you were going to do anything, it had to be videotaped or on Zoom or, you know, in some way um, captured onto media and for distribution. So it made a lot of people kind of start to rethink what was possible. Yeah. And it it came out so inventive and so many different people got to show off their own skills and, and things like that. So uh, yeah, I I thought it really made us all as creators think Mm -hmm. and reinvent. That's great. Well, we are just about out of time, but before we finish, I do want to ask you our uh, recurring question to each guest. Um, and so this podcast, the sort of idea behind it is to, um, you know, explain communication and bring communication out to the general public more. And one of the ways that's most commonly done is through the movies we watch, the books we read, the um, you know music we listen to and all that. So what is something that you are watching, reading, playing, or listening to currently that uh, you would like to share with our audience? Uh, I just finished Squid Game. Oh, okay. Yeah. The Netflix series. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was avoiding it for a little while just because um, I kind of wanted to be 
like, oh, I'm just not going to fall in with all of the hype. Like, I'm not going to, you know. But that's, ugh, nah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's got to be good if everybody's talking about it. I might as well. I kind of did the same thing with Bird Box when that came out. I waited a little bit and then finally gave in. And so I gave in to the Squid Games hype, and I'm with it now. I'm so, <laughs> so with it. Hype, hype on Squid Games. It's so good. Um, and I thought that it had really impactful themes, not only for obviously uh, South Korea, but but for America, I think a, a lot of the themes that they really showcased and sort of hinted at, mm. um, it, I thought it was really relevant. I thought it was impactful. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed that one. So I recommend it, even though you've probably heard, everybody's probably heard that they are recommending it. <laughs> well, and it, it's really interesting. I was just talking to a class this morning about it, that Here's the South Korean show that is the number one television show in 90 territories yeah. around the world, which is not something that we see very often. Um, it and you know, and the reason why is it seems to really be connecting with audiences yeah. um, in a way that a lot of international programming hasn't in the past, but even a lot of American programming, which we sort of tend to take a great deal of pride in that we export our media out to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but even a lot of American programming doesn't connect in the way that this one has. Yeah. I think it's kind of universal. And also I, I feel like everybody, at least that I know that has watched it can personalize and relate to at least one of the characters. Um, mm -hmm. Usually it's the main guy. <laughs> of course, it's always the main guy. They, they always make him the, the most relatable one or, um, but I think everybody can find a character in there that they just go, oh, that could have been me. Like I, I could have found myself in that same predicament and in that si same situation or that same debt. Mm. And, uh, and so it, it, it hits hard. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's really, really good. Great. So ev everyone check out Squid Game if you haven't already. As you noted, probably <laughs> most people have. Most people probably have, yeah. Uh, but maybe you can lead a discussion about it and figure out how people are feeling about it. <laughs> who do they empathize with and why? Right, uh, who are you? Take I, a quiz. <laughs> I, I think that would actually be really good for that show. Um, uh, yeah, I bet BuzzFeed already has a quiz on that. Which char which Squid Game character are you? Yeah. They've seems, got to. That seems likely. They have it for, like, you know, Saved by the Bell. Like, right. Which character are you? Which mac and cheese are you? <laughs> um, all right. Well, Kaylee, I, I really want to thank you for joining us today. Um, if people um, are interested in, like, your research and, and you and what you're doing and everything, um, do you have something you want to plug or some way that they can kind of follow up with you? Uh, really, I'm not on a whole lot of social media. I mean, I have Facebook for close friends, but otherwise, just in my my email. Really, if if they wanted to get in touch with me, am I allowed to just give? Sure. Uh, it's just my name, Kaylee Dot Scanlon at siu edu k a l a e dot s e a n l a n at siu edu. Um, I am also co-host of a podcast myself. This is the Paranoia Percentage Podcast. Um, so if you're interested in spooky things or cryptids or some light conspiracy theories we don't go into the the big scary ones but um we just released an episode on bigfoot okay yeah it was a lot of fun um and uh, the reason why it's called paranoia percentage is at the end of these episodes we give our percentage that we believe in what we're discussing usually it's like zero but <laughs> but they are <laughs> what fun were to you discuss. for bigfoot for bigfoot i think i was Actually, at the end of it, I think it was like 5%. Because uh -huh. we, we talked to a monster hunter who is adamant that he's had real experiences with them and mm -hmm. and has found their nesting sites and things like that. So it was, yeah, it was, I, I was at 0%. And then we talked to him and I'm going, mm, maybe. See, I, I think I have to give Bigfoot even a higher percent. Really? Because <laughs> I, I think uh, I'm a big X-Files fan, so um, I sort of want to believe Right. And so I want to believe that Bigfoot's out there. I, I like the idea <laughs> that there's this there's this animal out there living in the wild that has evaded us and has kind of like fooled us and everything. Right. Like I would, you know, is I don't know if I actually believe that. I want to believe that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, there are some that are just so compelling, like a, 
a few months back we did simulation theory mm-hmm. and I straight up believe it, but my co-host is like, nah. <laughs> this is sort of the matrix idea yeah, that we're all yeah. living inside of a computer simulation. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we just talk through some theories and some of them are very silly. Like we have one, one on uh, where rabbits, you know, <laughs> so they're usually really, they're usually just really funny and fun. And we just mm-hmm. sort of, um, just chat about these theories that some of them are, are very compelling and some of them are really silly. Um, yeah. So, but check us out at, uh, we're on YouTube, we're on anchor, pretty much anywhere that you can listen to a podcast. I recommend our YouTube because our editing is bomb. Um, (laughs) and you can watch us and, and I think we're kind of funny. Uh, it's paranoia percentage. All right. So, uh, Google that and I'm sure you can find it on the various platforms and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is the perfect season for it. So. Yes, we're gonna. Our next thing uh, coming up is that we're gonna be reviewing the worst movie of all time, Troll Two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Troll Two! I know. We'll never live down. It's, it's funny how we pick a movie that's suddenly the worst movie of all time, and you kind of watch watch it, and you go, "There's got to be something worse, right? Like, there's <laughs> something more incompetent. Like, this is bad, but it's not entirely incompetent." And, right. There's um, always something worse. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's funny how we collectively decide. No, yeah. this is the one. We're going to pick on this <laughs> this film. This will be the one that we pick on. That's true. Yeah, so check out the Troll 2 episode, particularly for Halloween, but uh, mm-hmm. that Bigfoot episode sounds really interesting as well. Um, thank you for everyone who is tuning in and listening. So just like you can find uh, that podcast on uh, various platforms, you can find this podcast on various platforms you've already obviously already found it, but if you're not already a subscriber, you can do so via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get podcasts. Um, my name is Justin Young. You can email me at justin.young at siu.edu if you have any questions, comments, or feedback on the podcast. Kaylee, I want to thank you again for being our guest this week. It's Thanks been really, for having me. Yeah, it's been great uh, learning fun. about everything that you do. And um uh, Please tune in next week. We'll have a, well, maybe not next week, but soon we'll have another guest. And uh, uh, thank you for listening.